Hello and welcome to Stories of the Second World War. Before we begin today's episode, I would like to recommend a history podcast that I've been listening to lately, and that is the China History Podcast by Laszlo Montgomery. For nearly 10 years, Laszlo has been creating dozens and dozens of podcast episodes featuring all kinds of interesting topics from ancient and modern Chinese history. There's also plenty of Chinese-American history and even big topics like the history of tea, the history of Hong Kong, Chinese philosophy, Tang poetry, the Cultural Revolution, the Chinese Civil War, and much more. Cathay Pacific Airways has also featured Laszlo's work for years as part of their in-flight entertainment. Look for the China History Podcast in all the same places you can find this podcast, Stories of the Second World War. The China History website, with all social media links, are at teacup.media. Be sure to check out the China History Podcast. Today I'm pleased to be joined by military historian Robert Forshik. Robert has a PhD in international relations and national security from the University of Maryland and a strong background in European and Asian military history. He retired as a lieutenant colonel from the U.S. Army Reserves, having served 18 years as an armor officer in the U.S. 2nd and 4th Infantry Divisions and as an intelligence officer in the 29th Infantry Division. He is also the author of a new book titled Case White, The Invasion of Poland, 1939, and that is our topic of discussion today. Robert, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for the invitation. Well, I'm so excited to have the opportunity to speak with you about your new book and about a topic that I don't know nearly enough about as I should. The German invasion of Poland in 1939 is an event that I think is surrounded in misconception. The Polish military is often viewed as being backward and woefully incapable of defending itself against Hitler's blitzkrieg. One often hears the notion of Polish cavalrymen charging towards armored panzers. As an expert in military history, what are the most common things people get wrong about the invasion of Poland? Well, as I mentioned in my introduction, the basic three are that Polish doctrine and weapons were obsolete and almost antique, as you mentioned, the cavalry charging tanks uh, trope has been around for a while. Also, that uh, the Polish forces had no access to modern equipment, that uh, basically very elderly equipment. Um, those are the most common. Uh, we also see a lot of continuation of German uh, propaganda stories from World War II, which unfortunately have remained in the, in the storyline that the Wehrmacht, the German military, was very successful, able to accomplish uh, all it wanted to do very quickly, the Blitzkrieg. I'm very careful in my book not to use that word, which has been overused. Uh, the, we have to remember this was a propaganda war, a term that were used by the Nazis to create this mythology that their attacks were invincible, unstoppable, uh, just rolled forward with, with uh, you know, no impediment from uh, the defense whatsoever. Uh, so these are the kind of myths that I want to try and overcome. Now, I'm not the first. Uh, Stephen Zaloga, for example, has been one of those, and there have been a number of other historians who have helped to dispel uh, the idea, particularly also that the Polish Air Force was destroyed on the ground on the first day, another one of those lingering falsehoods. 
so I'm not the first, but I'm trying to reinforce the idea and do it in a comprehensive way, looking at the campaign as a whole from the air, ground, sea, political perspective. Fascinating. Fascinating. Well, I think, you know, when talking about the invasion of Poland, one of the key events that started the Second World War, uh, many people really do talk up the German blitzkrieg and how it was just this massive, you know, euphoria of just tanks and airplanes and infantry and armor and everything all hitting the um, country of prey at once. Now, how did the Polish army in reality fare against the German invasion? Now, I'll just focus on the German invasion. We'll probably get to the Soviet one later. Um, what were sort of those initial moments of combat like? How did the Polish army fare against Hitler's army? Well, the, at the operational level, which is kind of the 50,000-foot view, the Polish army was badly deployed. Uh, the French had recommended to the Poles to pull back from the borders and try and defend around Warsaw and the Vistula River. That was rejected because essentially that would have abandoned a large portion of the country, including major population centers. So the decision was made politically to try and hold at the border. This meant that the Polish army was overextended, trying to defend way too much terrain with too few troops. And they had a mobilization that was still in process when the German invasion began. Now, down at the tactical level, which is more of, um, you know, the battalion regiment division level. The Germans did not do a very good job of uh, tactical reconnaissance. Of course, the war was just starting, so they, they just crossed the border. And in several instances, I note that when Germans bumped into Polish units, it didn't always go the German way or it didn't go particularly the way they wanted it to, which is the Germans would lose a few reconnaissance vehicles, a couple tanks, then they'd bring up forces and then overrun the, the local Polish forces. But in many cases, relatively small Polish forces were able to delay larger units in some places. Uh, at Mlawa, uh, north of Warsaw, for example, it was one of the few places where the Poles had developed um, some decent anti-tank defenses and fortifications. They were able to hold up the invasion force right near the border for the first two and a half days until the Germans were able to bypass it and force the Poles to withdraw. So the Germans were not even aware of those defenses, and uh, there were gaps in the German knowledge of Polish defenses, which uh, hindered their ability to move rapidly into the country. Nevertheless, German progress was rapid, particularly in the South. Certainly, certainly. Now, when the Poles were trying to defend their country, um, what sort of defense tactics did they seek to achieve? Did they Were they very keen on sort of building up these lines of defense? And then, you know, once the Germans would attack that, potentially move back or do something else, what was the key, really, to the Polish defense strategy? Well, again, at the operational level, unlike the French army or even the British army, the Polish army was much more offensively oriented. It was based on their experience in the Russo-Polish War, and warfare in the East was generally more mobile. There were no continuous fronts in the Polish campaign. Neither side, the Germans nor the Poles, were able to maintain a continuous front like you saw on the Western Front in 1940, where there was a continuous line of troops and units from the Channel to the Swiss border. There was never anything like that in Poland. There were gaps between uh, units. Both sides did not have the sufficient forces to maintain a continuous front. Uh, Polish tactics were basically based around uh, developing strong points of resistance based on anti-tank weapons. Uh, and artillery, 
but then using whatever mobile forces, including infantry, cavalry, what limited tanks they did have to launch counterattacks. And they were fairly effective in some places at launching small-scale counterattacks. Um, the main idea that they had was that they knew they were going to have to fight a delaying action back from the border into the interior of the country. Based on their experience from 1920, what they expected was that at some point the invader would be off balance and that they would be able to launch a major counteroffensive somewhere near Warsaw with their reserve forces. This essentially is sort of what happened on the Battle of Bazura, which began uh, in the second week of the invasion, uh, except it did not occur as they expected. In fact, it was rather unexpected how it, it played out. But they did expect basically a delay back to the center and then a counterpunch with their reserves once the enemy was off balance. That was the basic theory that they had guiding their defense. Okay. Well, the invasion of Poland was, of course, a two-pronged assault involving the invading armies of both Hitler and the Soviet Union. What were the differences in battles, skirmishes, combat experiences that the Polish army faced in dealing with two different invaders? Well, the, the Poles, up until 1938, had always expected that the main threat would come from the east. I mean, they'd been invaded in 1920 by the Russians. They were narrowly avoided defeat in the Battle of Warsaw in 1920. And up until the mid-1930s, Germany, of course, was not a serious military threat because of uh, disarmament imposed by the Treaty of Versailles. And it was only Hitler's rapid rearmament that suddenly made Germany a threat again by about 1937-38. So most Polish planning had been geared to keep the Russians out. At the last minute after the whole Czech crisis, the Munich crisis, the Poles were forced to reorient towards the West, and they realized that war with Germany was a distinct possibility. Once the German invasion began, uh, they had to reorient forces. It's important to note, a lot of histories don't mention this, but some of the very best units in the Polish army were in fact kept in the East through the first several days of the German invasion. Uh, the 1st Legion Division, for example, uh, was kept in the east, and that was one of the premier infantry divisions in the Polish army, was not moved west until about the fourth or fifth day of the war and did not get involved until the seventh or eighth. Uh, by the time the Russians came in, the only forces that Poland had left along the Russo-Polish border were the KOP troops. These are the border security guards. They were well-armed, but there were only about 20,000 of them, and of course, they were outnumbered about 10 to 1 by the Russians. Uh, most of the border outposts were overrun extremely quickly. Uh, however, there were enough small units left, uh, mostly reserve units, that there were a number of actions fought in the eastern part of the country. The, the Russian uh, typical take on this is that they moved into Poland after the government had fallen apart and that there was no resistance. It was a liberation movement, which, of course, is utter nonsense. Uh, the Poles resisted to the utmost of their ability, but on the other hand, they had very few forces left in this area. Uh, so there were sporadic battles here and there. The number of Russian casualties was around 1,000 killed uh, against the Poles, uh, Polish casualties more than that, and about 200,000 Poles were captured by the Russians, at least. So there was significant action, but it was very lopsided against the Soviet forces, whereas with the Germans, there was uh, several weeks of continuous combat until gradually the Polish army was ground down. 
What was the leadership of the Polish army like? Who were the key players and how would their influence affect the result of a Nazi Soviet invasion? Well, at the very top, Red Smigley was essentially uh, incompetent. Uh, he was uh, in a position way over his head. He'd been picked because he was a loyalist to Pilsudski, the former military autocrat uh, who had been running Poland up until his death in 1936. Uh, Red Smigley was picked because he was a competent division commander. Uh, all of a sudden, he was thrust up to be a national leader, and uh, he completely botched uh, the deployment the operational planning, pretty much everything involved. And uh, with better leadership, Poland probably would have been a little bit better prepared, a little bit better uh, deployed at the beginning of the invasion. It would not have changed the outcome in as much as Poland could not stand off against both Soviet Union and Germany, but it probably would have prolonged the conflict to some extent, uh, probably higher losses on both sides. But as it was, um, at the senior leadership, you had a, a dearth of capability that impaired Poland's ability to, to really prepare. Now, at the, the lower levels, uh, the core, which actually did not exist, they had operational groups, but at, the, at the, what we would call the core level, the division level, some of the leaders were quite good. On the whole, Polish leadership were generally all veterans of World War, the First World War and the Russo-Polish War. Uh, most of them had commanded units of that size, so that by in comparison to the German and Soviet leadership at those levels, the Poles were equivalent in terms of capability and, and leadership ability. Some of the Polish leaders were quite good. A few were quite bad. I mentioned in my book in some cases that they were as happens in any army at the beginning of a war, there's a weeding out process of people who uh, probably stuck around too long in the military and should have been weeded out years before. War weeds these people out in a matter of days. But by and large, the Polish uh, operational tactical level leadership was, was adequate for the task. What were the events during the campaign that led up to the Polish defeat? What were the initial efforts made by the Polish defenders, and how did those efforts eventually collapse? Well, as I mentioned, they, they tried to defend at the border, and there were several places like the Vata River line down the south that they tried to make a stand. However, uh, and they also tried to make a stand in, in Pomerania in the northwest. Uh, however, uh, very soon after the invasion began, Rid Smigley, the commander-in-chief, announced a withdrawal towards um, Warsaw. He ordered most forces to withdraw. Uh, essentially, he panicked. Uh, this was a massive mistake in that uh, it ended up with most of the Polish army, most but not all, basically starting to roll backwards. And at that point, the Germans were already advancing forward into the country, making good progress in the south, not as fast in the north. But uh, the problem with this, it's very tough once you get an army retreating, particularly when there's no agreed upon line of where you are retreating to, to stop that. So it ends up becoming uh, very chaotic, particularly for command and control. And Polish command and control started falling apart very rapidly um, after the first several days when their initial outer defenses were pierced. They really had not prepared a fallback position. Uh, they also made a classic mistake. Uh, Rid Smigley committed the reserve. They had an entire army in reserve south of Warsaw, um, which was 
their uh, their reserve army, uh, Army Prusy, they called it. And this one uh, was supposed to be the counterattack reserve force that I mentioned earlier. They had planned on being able to launch a major counterattack somewhere around Warsaw. Well, around day three, they decided to commit the reserve to reinforce in the south. And within several, just several days, the reserve army was basically squandered. And once that seed corn was gone, there was no real reserve left to build a new line. And reserve units were being mobilized, uh, but basically being committed piecemeal as they appeared. So essentially, the Polish army was in free fall after about day four and unable to establish a coherent line defense. Uh, the only place they were able to really dig in and hunker down was in Warsaw, which is why it held out for several weeks. Looking back upon this event in history, do you think that if things were done a little bit differently, there would have been any hope for Poland in 1939, that perhaps they could have defended the German and Soviet two-pronged invasion a little longer? Well, I think we have to take a couple steps back. There was only so much that Poland could do on its own. I go a lot into the defense preparations before the war. I note, note how they were hobbled by and handicapped by lack of funds. Uh, Poland did appeal to France, Britain, the United States for additional funding. Uh, this was very little and too late, in, basically, in showing up. If Poland had received more funding prior to the Munich crisis for its military, um, they probably could have been in a position to put up a little bit better resistance. And if the Germans could have been discouraged from invading Poland, that probably would have kept the Russians out. So the question there really there becomes, if you can deter Germany from an invasion, that might buy time. And I think that would have required a substantial commitment on the part of uh, the Western allies to give Poland greater funds. And of course, those countries, Britain and France, were involved in their own military rearmament at the time and really were only willing to give crumbs to uh, countries like Czechoslovakia and Poland in terms of, of military support. The other issue is also in terms of non-financial support. Um, I touch briefly on this in the book, but it's interesting that at the, just months prior to the German invasion of Poland, that there was a concurrent crisis going on in the Far East uh, involving Japan and uh, British concessions in China and an incident out there. And at that time, the British cabinet talked about sending a substantial part of the British home fleet to deter Japan. Uh, they wanted to send a, a large portion of the fleet out to the Far East to basically discourage Japan from making any moves against British colonies in the Far East. It was seriously discussed and then dropped after several weeks of discussion. But there was no such discussion about sending anything to the Baltic. And I wonder what would have happened if even a small British flotilla, a few destroyers, a, maybe a battalion of Royal Marines had showed up at Danzig, which technically Britain and France were two of the guarantors of Danzig, the international city. And had they been willing to send some kind of peacekeeping force there, to keep the local Nazis uh, from getting out of hand, that might have been a sign to Hitler that uh, the Allies were serious about protecting uh, not just Poland, but the international concession in Danzig. But no sign was given. So I think for Poland's situation to have been significantly different, there would have had to have been greater commitment from Britain and France to do something on the financial side, 
and also some kind of military demonstration that they were going to back up uh, their commitments with actual force instead of just talk. What are the things that the Polish army did correctly in dealing with the two-pronged invasion of their country? Despite their defeat, is there anything that the Poles did well and that perhaps lessened the horrific results of Nazi occupation? Well, on the first part of that, I would say that uh, when the Poles had fixed defenses to fight from, they fought very well. Uh, the Polish artillery and anti-tank uh, units, although they were limited in terms of how much they actually had, they did have some modern weapons, and they were able to destroy significant numbers of German uh, armored vehicles. Uh, they were able to inflict significant casualties. Unlike some of the the instances we saw in the West in the 1940 campaign, Polish units generally did not run away, uh, unlike some of the French units on the Meuse River in 1940. Uh, so you had fairly solid fight to the death defenses in in, in places. The Polish units uh, fought hard. They didn't surrender. It's also interesting, unlike France or Russia, the Russian campaigns in 1941, the Germans rarely surrounded any large Polish unit and forced it to surrender. I mean, in the in the French campaign, you saw large units, uh, 50,000 troops surrendering all at once and being surrounded. And in Russia, much even larger numbers than that, over 100,000 or more being surrounded and forced to surrender. But uh, by and large, Polish units were uh, had to be destroyed, reduced battalion by battalion until they were smashed. And you did not see intact units surrendering. In fact, it's interesting, the Polish cavalry brigades uh, often are much maligned in typical histories where they are, oh, they were destroyed or this, that, or the other thing. But in fact, uh, of the Polish cavalry brigades, uh, virtually all of them made it to the end of the campaign. Uh, they took heavy losses, but none of them were completely destroyed or even surrounded until the very end of the campaign, which refutes this idea that they were simply brushed aside by the panzers. In fact, uh, Polish cavalry, uh, some of the last units uh, still mobile in eastern Poland were two cavalry brigades under a general named Anders, who eventually escaped to the west and commanded the Polish II Corps in Italy uh, later on in 1944. Uh, so Polish cavalry actually managed to stay uh, managed to avoid destruction, as did uh, their other units. The uh, Poles had a fair number of tanks. They had three tank battalions, and two of them were committed to action. Um, the Poles actually had more tanks in 1939 armed with cannons than the BEF did, the British Expeditionary Force, uh, most of which which had very few tanks in 1939. Uh, so the Poles, with the weapons they had, uh, they did they were fairly effective. Uh, same thing with their air force. Uh, it was it was able to operate uh, for the first week of the war. In the second week of the war, they were forced to displace to the southeast, which essentially, due to lack of, of fuel and resources, limited their operations. But they were never destroyed. And in fact, over 10,000 personnel from the Polish Air Force escaped into Romania and Hungary. And of course, many of these thousands of them made their way to England and participated in the Battle of Britain. And I was going to ask you about that. So now, that is true. I understand that uh, quite a few members of the Polish military were able to escape and go on to fight throughout the Second World War. Um, is there anything notable about that? Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, the, uh, the German and Soviet plans had failed to account for the possibility that Polish troops might simply pass through the borders to the south. 
Um, so at this point in time, neither Romania nor Hungary were part of the Axis alliance. In fact, uh, a lot of people aren't aware, Romania continued to sell oil to Great Britain until May 1940 uh, through the Black Sea. And uh, so Romania still had trade relationships with Britain and France at this time. And uh, the exact number of Poles who crossed over at the end of the Polish campaign in 1939 was a roughly 30,000, but thousands more followed after this as well. So about 30,000 uh, military personnel were able to escape into Romania. Uh, the French military delegation that had been in Poland moved into Bucharest, and then they made their primary mission facilitating uh, the transport of these uh, Polish military exiles uh, to France and Great Britain. The Romanian government basically turned a blind eye. They only interned the highest level Polish uh, military officers. Ritz Migli and his, his cabinet, his staff were all interned in, in Romania. Uh, but the the rank and file and most of the lower level officers were all allowed to pass through. They simply were provided train tickets. Uh, they passed through Yugoslavia, then into Italy, and then to France, and then some went on to England as well. So uh, some of them were able to move from Poland to the West in a matter of a week. And uh, then they were reconstituted. The three Polish infantry divisions were reconstituted in France. And then, of course, in England, you had several fighter squadrons and several bomber squadrons uh, formed by uh, September 1940, with I think it was 303 Squadron being the highest scoring uh, Polish uh, RAF squadron, but it was flown with Polish pilots uh, in the Battle of Britain. Uh, so they were able to transfer a large portion of their veteran military personnel to the West. Uh, who then also formed uh, other units. Polish 1st Armored Division was commanded by uh, Maciek, who had commanded the Black Brigade, which was the elite, the one elite Polish mechanized brigade that they had, uh, consisting of tanks and mechanized vehicles in the Polish campaign. He and most of his officers and personnel escaped into Romania and made their way west, and uh, they would eventually participate in the Normandy campaign, uh, played a key role uh, closing the Falais Gap in 1944. So. Certainly the Germans uh, were chagrined to see these uh, people escape to the West and live to fight another day. Yeah, no doubt. Well, Robert, the last question I'll ask you today is this. Um, we've talked throughout our conversation today about the misconceptions that many people have about the invasion of Poland in 1939. As everyone listening goes out and picks up a copy of your book, Case White, what would you just encourage them to bear in mind as they read your book and study the invasion of Poland? Well, I think the main thing, as I point out in the beginning, and maybe I don't hammer it home enough, is that I believe that the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact was the greatest criminal conspiracy of the 20th century. You had Hitler and Stalin uh, collaborate to you know, facilitate a major land grab in Eastern Europe, not just Poland, but also the Baltic states. Finland, Bessarabia, other territories they coveted. Um, with Case White, the issue is that the 1939 campaign is typically seen as Hitler starting the Second World War. It's his fault and his alone. Uh, Stalin manages to get a great pass on this because the Soviet intervention on, you know, on 17 September is seen as sort of an afterthought, when in fact they were both full 
cold-blooded conspirators who divided the country up in half and proceeded to loot it, uh, you know, to their heart's content. This was the intent all along of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. And it was also Stalin's intent to see a second world war in Europe, because in the long run, uh, he expected to gain additional territories in Eastern Europe. He he was backing Hitler at that point um, because he saw Nazi Germany as the instrument for knocking down Western Europe, the Anglo-French. And he recognized that that once Poland was done, Hitler would turn west. He, Stalin hoped that this would help enfeeble the Western allies or at least tie them up, which would give him time and ample opportunity to seize additional land in the, in the uh, Eastern Europe, such as Finland, uh, the Balkans. Uh, he also had interest in Turkey and Persia as well. And uh, so I think that's one of the things that, that often gets lost in the mix here is there's a sense that this is just a minor campaign that kicked off the war when, in fact, this is a lot more to it. This was the beginning of an effort to reorder uh, the international order in at least Eurasia. And um, it was a two-country effort that was two-party effort that was involved, not just Hitler. Uh, if Stalin had not signed the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact and given Hitler a free hand to do as he wanted in, in uh, the western part of Poland, I think it's it's possible that Hitler might not have acted in 1939. He might have had doubt that this is not the time. I, I you know, He did not want to fight a two-front war. He did not want to kick off a conflict with Poland that potentially could include other countries against him and he'd find himself alone. So I think that's the key equation here that really gets lost in the mix is that without Stalin, this does not become World War II. If it's, if you, we, we've looked at it so long, just in the context that this was Hitler's decision, his alone, and that this was the spark that, that, that started the Second World War, when in fact this was, this was an effort by countries that felt they'd been locked out of the international system by the Treaty of Versailles. They were, both the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany felt they were pariah states regarded by the West. This was their chance to change the balance of power, and they took it. And I think that's the thing that Case White was a lot more than just about a German invasion of Poland. It was about a reordering of the international order, and it was really the 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 um, the straw that really changed everything. That uh, that once it was pulled out, that uh, it it began a process of of changing that order that continued for years after, and and really even after the Second World War, because even once Hitler was defeated, Poland still had to deal with a Russian occupation. Uh, and uh, an imposition of, of everything they were trying to prevent in 1939. So from the Polish perspective, World War II did not end in 1945. It, it ended when the, when the Russian occupation ended in 1989. Uh, so um, I think that's one of the main things I want to get across. In case why is not to take a parochial view that we normally see, Blitzkrieg, Stukas, Panzers, um, you know, the... Uh, over in 21 days kind of thing. Uh, that That's the German propaganda image. And unfortunately, a lot of people have been comfortable with that and haven't really examined uh, the larger context of what was going on here. That That's what I hope my contribution is. Absolutely. Well, Robert, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. And everyone listening, you will find a link to Case White, The Invasion of Poland, 1939, in the description of this episode. But Robert, thanks again for joining me today. 
Thank you so much. Thank you all so much for listening today to Stories of the Second World War. Please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting platform and consider leaving a positive rating and review. You can also find the podcast at storiesofthesecondworldwar.com with more information about the show. Thanks so much for listening. Join us right here again next week.